from the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello. So I'm excited about today's movie. Of all the movies uh, we've done so far, when I think of like 80s-ness type movies. This one really encompasses the 80s. And that movie is Weird Science. So that'll be our main movie of discussion today. Also, I'm excited because this is our first uh, episode where we're going to have a guest segment. Even before we started doing these, I always thought it'd be cool for us to have like a guest segment i'm thankful that our friend justin hayward from chicago he is a commercial director he's also directed a feature film um he's going to do a segment for us uh in this episode that'll give us some more get into some more of like technical aspects of the movie making process i know like we have fun we do we have fun doing our discussions on the films but um i thought it'd be nice to bring somebody in to talk a little bit more about the technical side Every time I've heard you, you talk about Justin or a- anything that I've heard from him, um, I love all of his insights. Always incredibly, um, he's very engaging. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's going to be a part of this. So um, you'll hear from our friend Justin Hayward later on in the podcast. Uh, he sent us a nice little segment to uh, add in here. So we're going to talk about weird science. Uh, and as always, we will be doing our picks of the week. Um, which we always try to relate to our movie, main movie of discussion. Um, I chose John Hughes's uh, really undermentioned uh, She's Having a Baby. I never really hear that Very mentioned. undermentioned, um, yeah. I sometimes forget that was written and directed. <laughs> I thought maybe it was one of his like 50 movies that he wrote but did not direct. 50 movies. Yeah. Good God. He directed like... Eight? Only only eight movies, yeah. yeah. Eight movies and wrote, yeah, like 50, yeah, fi- yeah something somewhere around um, there. And you also chose a John Hughes film. I did, one that he did not direct but wrote and produced, um, that being The Great Outdoors with yes. uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. Excellent choice. Yeah, one of my favorites. Um, and then, uh, of course, we always round out our podcast with our Murray moments mm-hmm. uh, with a little tidbit on Bill Murray from, from Lindsay over here. It's gonna be it's gonna be an adventure on this Murray moment. So yeah. hang with me. Um, so again, our main uh, feature here is weird science. Um, I'm glad we picked this one. I know we've mentioned this before, but um, I know we're kind of keeping this to like 80s, 90s movies, part nostalgia, part because I honestly think that some of the best films came out of yeah. the 80s. Uh, and this, but there is a, a laundry list of so many reasons why. Right. Um, but I do feel that this is out of all the films we've done so far. This to me is like that quintessential 80s, just goofiness. It, um, it's it's goofy. It It is ridiculous. It has, I mean, right down to like neon colors, extreme costumes, extreme hair, like everything, everything is there. And I am, I am happy that we went for... I mean, I assume that we were going to do a John Hughes film sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad that we picked this one. You know, I felt like it wasn't the total on the nose choice. Yeah, for there are plenty, 
plenty of other ones that people go to first. Weird science is is definitely known, but not necessarily a go to. Like yeah. I said. So there's a lot of lot of fun stuff to talk about. Um, again, I think we'll talk about the eightiesness of this film. Other topics. Uh, what do we have here? We'll probably hit on um, a little bit of. You know, the role of the Kelly LeBrock character in this and how we, um, how, is this a sexist movie? Is it not a sexist I, movie? I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that discussion. I think yeah. it's, you know, uh, watching this um, several times uh, this week, that thought crossed my mind. Um, and also the, uh, uh, I recently, I always, I, I can't help it. I go and I listen to the Siskel and Ebert Mm-hmm. Um, YouTube clip of whatever movie we're doing. Yeah. I just, I can't help myself. Yeah. And uh, man, they get in a heated battle on this movie um, <laughs> with Gene Siskel saying, you know, this is outright like toilet humor, sexist film. Mm-hmm. You know, Ebert's like, you know, you're, 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 you're not seeing it in the right light. So we might have our own little discussion. I don't think it's going to be heated though. And, just uh, wait, just right. and really I like, you know, we'll talk about, the placement of this film in John Hughes's career because he's had a very illustrious and interesting career. And again, writing, you know, known as a writer, but I think he's a strong director. And I think Mm -hmm. the placement of this film in his filmography career uh, would be interesting thing to talk about. And I really think it would be a shame to really not spend some time talking about Bill Paxton because I feel like this movie is what just like brought bill paxton to the masses like this was his like just i I wish i knew the exact amount of screen time he has in this but what he does have you you remember his character like the just crappy older brother bully terrible terrible person chet yeah of course your name's chet yeah i i think uh yeah i've Really any chance that we can get to talk about Bill Paxton, I'm I'm all for it, but (laughs) now we have like a really superb reason to do so. Um, Probably talk a little bit about Kelly LeBrock. I think that, um, you know, we'll get to that, but I think she has, does like a really extremely great performance here. She's got a great humor about uh, her role in this movie. I think she's very underrated for what she brought to this movie. Mm Uh, so before we go to a clip and continue on with discussion, um, I don't know. I always feel it's necessary to, even though this movie is very thin on plot, mm-hmm. um, to give some preface of what the movie's about. And uh, you're always kind enough to write up these summaries, which I really appreciate. Yeah, we have to have that so yeah. you know what we're talking about in case you haven't seen the movie. Yeah. Um, so we have these uh, two high school nerds, geeks, whatever you want to call them, dweebies, whatever. Um, in- incredibly good with computers, apparently. Um, these two guys, 14, 15, 16, uh, that create this woman out of scanning images into their computer. Uh, uh, whether it be they've got the brains, the most beautiful woman in the world that they can find, everything that they can think to create the most perfect woman in the world. And then they magically manifest her in their bedroom. And she um, ends up not being just a sex pot. Um, And I'm using that word because it's used in the movie. Um, But she ends up being a little bit more than that, teaching them a little bit about uh, confidence, 
self-respect and um you know standing up for themselves yeah i wonder if the word sex pot is used anywhere outside of this movie ever i don't I know that I used it maybe in high school or yeah. something like that. That's but not a term I've ever, I really hear ever. Yeah, I don't think it's used. Hashtag sexpot. Hashtag sexpot. Um, I love that uh, after they created the introduction of her characters, uh, the door to uh, Gary's room or was it Wyatt's room? Uh, yeah, Wyatt's explodes. Just it's completely explodes. It's an amazing and then, scene. And then she's standing there in all her glory. Her her entrance in that scene is incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, let's go to a clip of this incredibly crazy film, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Okay, look, you know how you're always talking about how you can simulate all that stuff on your computer? You know? What's the difference? Why can't we simulate a girl? I don't know. I, I guess I could, but why? It's two-dimensional on the screen. It's, it's not flesh and blood, Gary. Well, I know that, but you know we can we can use it. Why? We can ask it questions. We can we can put it in real life sexual situations and see how it reacts. We're like we're sick to manage shit. You'd love it. Well, what about your girl in um Canada? She was in Canada. This girl's no morals. You know, I don't I don't like that on a girl. I, it's rough having those kind of relationships. You'll see. <clears throat> anyway, get to work. I think this is a this is an interest to me. It's interesting, again, like we were saying, uh, where the placement of this in John Hughes' career. So he started with Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, then he did this film, followed mm-hmm. by Ferris Bueller, and this really, to me, feels a, in a lot of ways. A lot of people think this is John Hughes's, or at least I've read, you know, criticisms that this is his. He missed the mark on this one. His major departure. But to me, in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like this is his most confident film because he did these two films where he clearly hit the mark on how teenagers talk and how they evoke their mm-hmm. emotions. And he had already done that, so he was able to say, okay, I I, I know how teens talk. I know how what their world is like, so now I want to make this just like, throw everything at the wall make this totally crazy movie. Um, and I, and I think that it really, it's him cutting loose. Uh, I, I think it's his most bold film. If I, you know, if I can go there, like, um, I really think that this is a film that is and maybe even like a little bit misunderstood. You know, it's like if you can look past the just sheer, cause it is insane. I mean, this movie is completely insane. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. It, it, there is no, there's nothing logical, like there's nothing that happens and it could actually ever happen. Um, and I think in a way when you're coming off of 16 candles and, and breakfast club that yes, have comedic comedic elements, but do have a serious undertone. Um, it makes sense that your movie after that is going to just be like off the wall. Yeah. And I do think, and I think that maybe what's missing in this film. And I don't think it's lacking. I would just say what's missing mm-hmm. from what John Hughes has done. And he did in later films was like this tenderness. Um, cause there's touches that and, and, and there, and there he, are elements of it. There's this. elements, but it's not as, um, it's not as like yes. bogged down, like, like tra- planes, trains or like uncle buck. They're always this moment of like tenderness, like we're coming together. And there is a little bit of that. I mean, he, he ends all his films, I think in like, in, 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 in a lot of ways, identical way, but I feel like yeah. this was less about yeah. being tender and more about going for f- full on humor. 
And I think really this movie has some of his funniest bits of all the films that he's directed, in, in my opinion. You know, I was just thinking that Ferris Bueller to come after this too, it doesn't have very many tender moments in it. It does have a few, um, but also that's that's another movie that is like not very realistic either. I mean, yeah. it's different. Uh, it's not a science fiction movie, but it is very different. Um, but it's kind of a, more along the lines of the weird science, like ridiculousness nature yeah. as compared to like the breakfast club. Um, it is interesting though, that he comes off of these like two kind of, two kind of heartfelt movies um, and then does two right after it like that. Yeah, these like sort of. I, well, actually, you when we were talking uh, before we started here, you used the word fantastical. Yeah, which I think is a good weird science, really is. good way to f- describe the film. Is it's not fantasy. It's not to me. It's like sci-fi weirdness comedy, but fantastical is a very good a way to describe. This yeah, film. I mean, it just it 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 makes no logical sense. It's kind of anything that you could dream up would happen in this movie. Yeah. Which makes it really fun and which makes it a movie to not be taken seriously in any way that, um, in any 80s way that it could be offensive. I I think that it's, you can't take it very seriously. It's meant to just be like a fun movie. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is my favorite John Hughes film, but this one is also one that I like to come back to because it is so crazy. I mean, there's like yeah. multiple scenes, like the 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 party scene where the like mutant killers come. What happens in that party scene? I, it, I, if you break down that scene, <laughs> every moment of that scene is just pure insanity. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's just so absurd. Um, but well, I but I love it. My 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 favorite part of the that whole party scene isn't necessarily like the the punks that come in. Um, and and break up the party but it's when um it's it's when something happens and causes this big when another lisa is attempted to be created right basically and everything starts going haywire dogs are on roofs or, or on ceilings like a room turns blue for no reason right just yeah. like it's uh, our winters in chef's yeah, room <laughs> just um completely ridiculous things that make it that that make this idea of anything as possible. Yeah, and I love that uh, it all this is going on, you know, and it's just like, what else could possibly be thrown into this scene to make it any crazier? And then yeah. they like cut to this like five star restaurant, and it's like, uh, like <laughs> it's uh, Wyatt's grandparents, and like, well, what do, what is Wyatt up to this evening? <laughs> mm, I'm sure nothing more than a, a a grandson would want is a is a visit from his grandparents <laughs> on the Saturday night. Which you know, it's just like so w- weird. It's just like out was, of nowhere they just like cut into this restaurant. What was John Hughes thinking when he's like, you know what, we're gonna throw something real wacky in. We're yeah. gonna like how can we make his grandparents end up at this uh, party? Let's figure then, that and then one they're out. They're like frozen in a catatonic <laughs> state by Lisa. And yeah. it's just um it just it's it's just so you know, again, it's just so just ridiculous. It's a very fun movie. Um, in fact, we're watching it in the background. Um, there are numerous scenes I would say in this movie that stand out more to me than those in the breakfast club. Cause kind of like, I, I know the breakfast club very, very well. 
and I can tell you everything that happens in it. But when I think about it, like it's um, it's kind of I mean, it does take place all in the same vicinity. But um, this movie has specific parts that will will always stand out and always um, make me draw much more of a laugh out of me than anything. Yeah. Else. I yeah, I think that this one it's it was more pushing for jokes and and comedic yeah. ele- comedic moments. And yeah, some of it um, is quote unquote toilet humor. Sure. But I mean, I don't know. Comparatively, Sometimes it's funny too. Yeah, I mean. So before we go to another clip, I think it would be a shame not to uh talk about Bill Paxton a little bit. I love Bill Paxton so much and I feel like this was his film that really just exposed him to America. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny to me too, because I think like the later part of Bill Paxton's career, he was more known for this sort of soft spoken, gentle mm-hmm. cre- character, <laughs> uh, you know, gentleman type yeah. character. Um, but yeah, he just came out guns blazing with the Chet character and then followed this up with basically Chet, goes to the marines <laughs> and is an aliens you know it's like the same character only he's like a marine you said that um, to me uh, last week um yeah saying that that this yeah. is chet gro- grows up and yeah. that's what aliens is somehow uh we we, we like aliens has a tie to everything we talk about it's just I'm, like we, we end up bringing up aliens in in our podcast i mean really alien and aliens um great films. but yeah i think bill paxton uh like you were saying in the beginning, uh, really plays up and it is a, uh, all these characters are exaggerated, but it is this exaggerated, like, uh, older brother, just total bully, just like Such a do, doing it, d- torturing you just for the sheer fact that you're there and, and he has the authority to do so. Um, and just, and also just totally taking pleasure in it. I mean, it, it just, uh, it, but, but the thing is, is like, he doesn't know what, right. sucks. Um, but he just does it in the way that's just so funny. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just so outlandish. Um, but then it's so great because then when he gets turned into the, the little, like, is it, I mean, like turd, you know, it they, says it's that a, he's turned into a turd, but it's like. I don't know. What is he? Is he, I feel he's like, like he's turned into a turd goblin. monster. I know. I know. It's just, why does he still have hair? Right. Then why does he have hands that um, look like a frog's hands? But I think that the I, I don't know. idea was like, this I know, is he's gross. A turd. I know. He's yeah, this disgusting. Gross. But he's turned into like, you know. It's like a frog what? turd. Yeah. A frog turd. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Toilet humor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, I think uh, like you were saying, I, you know, it's like I don't know what the amount of time Bill Paxton has on screen, but he's just stealing it away from everybody when he's there. Um, I know that just whenever forced to be reckoned with. Whenever this movie gets brought up, it's Bill Paxton's character always gets brought up. Yeah, is either he just sucks so much, or you just love his scenes because he's so terrible. Yeah, just him, uh, like. Uh, going out of the door by kicking it with the back of his foot like the, just how he exits the scene um yeah. just like <laughs> uh, just so silly but I, the, I love every bit of it what's the dirty ashtray oh uh quote um trying to get uh gary to be sick uh how would you yeah. like a 
a greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray, uh, which I, if my memory serves correct, I, in an interview, I think Bill Paxton said that was something that his father used to actually tell him whenever Bill Paxton was hung over to kind of oh. mess with him. Um, that was taken from his actual way to bring it in. Bill yeah, Paxton. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Pulling little nuggets from, from his own reality. Yeah. Um, but so, yes, much love to Bill Paxton. R.I.P. Uh, Bill Paxton. Yes, very much so. We miss you so much. Um, well, we're going to go to another clip. Uh, I like to find a clip here with Kelly LeBrock. Um, I think... Uh, it's my favorite part of I, I think that Kelly LeBrock is the one that is just totally never talked about as far as... Which is What she strange. brings to this movie. I think she really makes this film. So we'll go to a clip uh, with uh, Kelly LeBrock playing the character of Lisa, who really drives this entire film. And we'll talk a little bit about her after we come back. Right. If you get the chance, shower with them. I did. It's a mind scrambler. Oh, that's so good. I think Kelly LeBrock with the character of Lisa in this movie. And yeah. I think that she has a lot of subtleties. I think she has like incredible comic timing. Um, it, it's kind of shocking to me that, that uh, Hollywood didn't see her performance in this film and that she didn't have like this. I mean, maybe she didn't want that. Maybe she didn't want a long career, but yeah. I felt like she could have been really used in a lot of like comedic movies. I'm not sure about that. I know that uh, like right before, uh, weird science she was in uh, the gene wilder movie the woman in red and that was like her first movie that she did um that movie isn't is is i i have a special feeling for in my heart because i love gene wilder and i yeah. love gilda radner um but it is maybe like not the best when it comes to the objectification of women i would say um, Weird Science is my will always be my favorite of hers because I think her her comedic timing and how she owns every scene. And, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I, I know that her character is supposed to be confident and completely in charge, and she she nails it. She is that character. And I feel like she does that sarcastic tone really well. That uh, I don't think that was something that I picked up on as much when I was younger watching the movie. Um, yeah, I really think I would have loved to have seen what it would have been like to have seen her go on to do more comedic roles. Um, so one more thing I know we wanted to talk about before we move on to our picks of the week. Um, and we kind of talked about a little bit in the beginning of w when this movie came out uh, for John Hughes. Uh, um, he had really been sort of dubbed this, like the the voice of the the younger generation, um, coming off of Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles. Um, critics really loved him, and and you know, saying he was able to uh, write this realistic dialogue that really connected with um, younger audiences, um, talk about real situations, uh, real life drama, but also mix it with humor. And when this movie came out, it was sort of just like a 360 from the movies he had done before. So uh, a lot of critics um, really hated on this movie. They felt it was sort of lowbrow for John Hughes, um, kind of calling it toilet humor, uh, incredibly sexist. And it was interesting to me because yeah, a lot of movies we watch 
um, now and a lot of times you think not only was this movie not progressive for its time but uh, some scenes can just get downright cringy and in the uh, John Hughes universe, to me, the, the that movie that comes to mind is Sixteen Candles. Um, we won't get into that, but yeah, just coming off uh, scenes coming off stereotypical or um, racist or you know sexist. And but with Weird Science, um, yeah, I think it's something we wanted to talk about the character Elisa because uh, we both really adore this movie and think it's sharp and witty and funny. Um, but we wanted to take a look at the portrayal of the character uh, that Kelly Labar. Brock plays and I think we both um, had you know the same feelings about this her, her character is very interesting in the way that okay so we're already in this like we've already said this fantastical world this world that makes no sense that is not logical at all and we have this woman that has been created ex- expressly for the uh, purpose of to serve these two adolescent boys. Okay, so on the surface, this does not look very good. This looks like this is just like, um, this is just uh, objectifying this woman. Even in the first scene, we see we see them, um, she's taking a shower with them, right? Right. <laughs> it's a great scene. She's taking a shower with them. It is a completely unsexual scene as far as Lisa is concerned. She's like, isn't the shower great? You guys really need to loosen up if anything's ever going to work. And she exits the shower and we find that the boys are still in their shorts and they're like, still like, I'm nervous about everything. But I think right there, it kind of sets the tone for what, um, for what this is about. Um, and I think more than the objectification of, um, Lisa, I think that this movie is more about puberty in the sense if every man in the movie was like their jaw was dropping and then they couldn't even talk when like looking at Lisa, like that would be, that would be something. Or if she didn't ever say anything or if she only got by on her looks, Lisa gets by on what she says, what she does. She is confident. She's defending these boys. She's making them stand up for themselves um with her parents with her peers she's she's not taking any guff from like bullies that they're that these guys are getting yeah it's like she always seems to be the one in control of all the situations but no i I think you make a great point about um this being a film about puberty i think um especially because we start with these two uh like Wyatt and Gary are fifth, what, 15, 16, um, these sort of like virginal boys that are oversexed and Lisa, um, yeah, in the beginning seems to be, um, this object, um, of sex, but then uh, essentially in, in, in a way really becomes like the, like a maternal figure to them. Um, and, uh, we get that uh, toward the end when they find, the two girls that they like and they say, well, what about Lisa and, and Gary and White say, we, we don't think of her in, in that way. You know, she's, she becomes this like voice of wisdom. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's the purpose underneath this, that she's um, this brainy woman that kind of sees through everyone else's bull. But the character of Lisa, I don't think through John Hughes's eyes or really through this movie in general, I don't think that it was, set out to be sexist nor does it really portray a sexist image 
if we're living in the reality of weird science, the character of Lisa isn't like a real person. She's a created out of of a computer. Right. So, so if we're living in that reality, she is being the best representation of a woman that she can be. Yeah, and, and just to kind of close on that, does a how ridiculous the you know the plot is of that like you're saying yeah she's created from a computer the in this reality um but i do like that you know john hughes takes that and then uh like you were saying earlier um flips it and has her become the person that shapes these guys um into yeah gentlemen and then once she realizes uh her job is done and they realize that they have the same relationship. Um, she knows it's time to move on and continue on in this alternate reality that we have. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, but all the John Hughes movies, uh, we could have picked. I'm glad we, we went with uh, weird science. Uh, I think it's time we move on to our picks of the week. Is it time? It is time. All right. Yeah. Our picks of the week, both very, John Hughes related films yeah we definitely we stayed hard on John Hughes this week so your pick of the week was The Great Outdoors do you want to kick this one off Lindsay of course Um, all right so written and produced by weird science man John Hughes uh, 1988's Great Outdoors was also directed by Howard Deutsch and starring John Candy and Dan Aykroyd it's very different from weird science but still deals with two central male leads Uh, But instead of two adolescent uh, boys, we have two grown men who couldn't differ any further. The two protagonists are exact opposites, both temporarily ruining each other's lives until they reach the end of the film where they have bonding moments and ultimately um, the metaphorical burying of the hatchet, even if they've spent the entire movie wanting to bury the hatchet in each other's faces. Um, John Candy takes his wife and two sons to the northern to a northern woods uh, wilderness town, a cabin lake getaway, if you will, um, for some quality family bonding. Um, John Candy's cousin, played by Dan Aykroyd, his wife, played by Annette Benning, in her first film role, which is pretty cool, and their two twins unexpectedly crash the family vacation. Um, one family is average, wholesome, sweet, while the other is a high rolling upper class type of folk, um, who can't really understand why you'd want to go to the middle of nowhere for a vacation anyway. The film is totally heavy on Ackroyd and Candy. Um, either one of them are in almost every scene, so you've got to be down with them in order to like this movie at all. Um, I feel like they truly embody the roles to, of, of both these characters to the nth degree, um, Uh, There is definitely a lot of physical comedy, though I feel like the movie doesn't rely upon that a lot. I feel um, like it touches on a lot of gross humor in some ways, but not overly um, to the point that it's a little too much. A lot of misunderstandings that end in hilarity, smart, sarcastic, quippy dialogue that never fails to be um, cutting quick or, you know, even poignant in some scenes. Um, a lot of memorable moments and uh, quotes anywhere from, you know, the guy who gets struck by lightning 666 times, um, the bald-headed killer bear 
the repeated raccoon trash attacks, the old 96er steak eating challenge, what it means to find yourself a spin cycle, and even a hot towny girl sub subplot. I mean, I don't know what could be better than that. Um, there's so much there. Um, for me, this movie is consistently funny all throughout. Um, it's not going to make you roll on the floor laughing, I think, at, at any point. But I've seen it more than a few times than I can count. And have probably quoted the movie more than your average person. So, I mean, give it a whirl. It's a great fam family comedy with a touch of raunchiness, sly, cheeky dialogue, um, nature-loving humor, too, especially with those raccoons. Um, it'll probably keep you chuckling well into the outro dance sequence um, that's over a classic uh, Wilson Pickett number. It's pretty entertaining. I've never not liked watching this movie. Yeah, this is a... I just watched this uh, not too long ago. Any, It's this time of year, I always feel like as soon as the the temperature gets above like 85 degrees i get like the urge to to turn on some great outdoors yeah um great pick my pick of the week is the often again like i said the often unmentioned john hughes uh written and directed uh she's having a baby mm -hmm. man she's having the baby for the most part uh at least this is how it felt to me watching it now. It feels like a very angry John Hughes movie. Like a lot of his movies feel very lighthearted and this film uh, kicks off in a very, uh, all the characters seem very unsettled and like mad and like all the way down from like Kevin Bacon not wanting to not sure if he wants to get married. Alec Baldwin plays his like sleazy friend. I mean, the whole movie centers on basically two, uh, a couple like that are getting married young and almost doing it because they feel like it's something that they should do, um, but their parents don't really want them to get married. I mean, everybody just seems like going into it, it seems like this whole thing is going to be a bad idea. So the movie starts off on sort of a very sour note, and I feel like just kind of plays into that ultimately until like the last 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes to me feels like your traditional John Hughes film. Um, and I kind of wonder why that is, you know, I, like I do know that this movie was filmed, uh, sort of during this year he was, um, producing, I believe it was the great outdoors and also plans, trains, and automobiles, um, he was working on that. And so maybe that, you know, he was overloaded and some things got left to the wayside, but this is, this is definitely like a lot of the movie. And again, I'm not, I don't, I recommend this movie is like something I think is worth seeing. Um, just because it is John Hughes, but it's a different John Hughes. And, and yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fascinating watch just simply because it is, it, it's an odd film for John Hughes. It's and, and the word I use is angry because I just feel like there's a lot of animosity, like amongst the characters and the scenes. Um, but I will say overall, uh, yeah. And some very strange things too. Like, uh, they, they live in Chicago. He wants to be a writer, but they move to the suburbs and, um, like his neighbors are like way older than him. And they think that he's like a total weirdo that he like is writing a book. You know, it's like the, it, I guess maybe it's like John Hughes's take on this suburban hell. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd film in his career, but it's interesting to watch just in the sense that it's, I think it's so much different. Um, but, uh, if you are, my wife is from Chicago and I go to Chicago often. Um, and if anything, I feel like Elizabeth, Elizabeth McGovern, uh, really, uh, kind of nails the Chicago accent. Um, <laughs> Man, I need to watch it for she, that. You know, she re- she really kind of nails the Chicago accent. I'm not from Chicago, you know, but so maybe it my ears, you know, someone from Chicago would be like, yeah. I but, only lived there for four years, um, but I feel like I can pinpoint but, it. But uh, I really feel like mo- she she the, the accent to me, to my ears, really doesn't feel um, over-exaggerated it feels like just right yeah so if anything i think it's worth checking it out for that also if you're like me and you're a completist it's a good way to close out the john hughes directed movies um so those are our picks of the weeks uh the great outdoors and she's having a baby and that's going to bring us to our newest addition to the podcast uh this is our first ever uh guest segment uh which we're both pretty excited about um, we mentioned a little bit in the beginning, our friend Justin Hayward uh, is a working uh, commercial director in Chicago, which uh, coincidentally all most of John Hughes films take place. And he also happens to be a gigantic John Hughes fan. His segment is basically going to be, and I'm hoping that he does more of these, it's giving us a little bit more insight into the craft of filmmaking, you know, whether it be editing or shooting or directing. Um, and so, uh, I uh, listened to his segment. It's really great. Um, he, uh, is going to talk about planes, trains, and automobiles and how the scene is edited in a particular style and comparing it to another film. Um, I think it's really interesting. Uh, I hope that, uh, he comes back and does more of these for us, but, um, this is Justin Hayward um, breaking down the scene in Plain Strains and Automobiles for us. It seems anytime I talk about any technical aspect of a John Hughes movie, I almost always get into the editing. It's because he was a master at rhythm in the edit. Even if they're generally cut in a traditional way, his films feel like they have a snappy beat to the edit, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is no different. So, I want to take this traditional rhythmic style that John Hughes is a master of and contrast it with another master filmmaker whose stellar technical craft is only outweighed by his extremely non-traditional choices. These are two complete filmmaker opposites, and that filmmaker is none other than, hold for dramatic pause, Stanley Kubrick. I know comparing John Hughes to Stanley Kubrick isn't so much comparing apples to oranges as it is comparing apples to octopus, but there's a scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles that I feel is a great example of how much a few changes in the edit could drastically change changed the tone of the picture, and the way Stanley Kubrick handled similar setups in his movies is a great contrast to present my point. The setup for this particular type of scene is this. There are two characters in a room by themselves, and one character delivers a passionate monologue to another character, and the other character reacts with facial expressions. Think of the scene in The Shining when caretaker Grady delivers a monologue in the bathroom to Jack Nicholson about, quote, correcting his family. Or the scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off when Cameron delivers the monologue to Ferris and Sloan about standing up to his father. Okay, that's three people, but you get the idea. Obviously, this kind of scene is nothing new, but what's interesting about those kinds of scenes is how much the editing affects the emotion. Because it's people standing and staring or talking, when you cut to the person talking and the person listening can become critical. Let's take the scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles when Steve Martin is 
is reaming John Candy for the first time in that hotel room. Steve Martin's character has finally had enough of John Candy and not only stops being polite, he insults him over and over in a terribly cutting monologue while John Candy just watches him with pure heartbreak. I, I, I could tolerate any, any insurance seminar. For days I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. The scene is cut with John Hughes' rhythmic touch where we see Steve Martin for a bit, then cut to Candy looking sad, then back to Martin as he monologues, then back to Candy, and so on and so on. It goes back and forth until Martin finally stops and gives Candy a moment to say something. It's a great scene that evokes a range of emotions from laughing at Martin to feeling guilty about laughing at Martin and finally feeling sad for Candy. It's great traditional editing, but nothing particularly creative or different. Not that it should have been. This is likely the best way to have cut this scene in this movie. Now let's turn to another classic comedy, Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, I know it's not a comedy, but there's a moment where one character attempts to hurt another character through a monologue. It's the scene when Nicole Kidman confesses to her husband, Tom Cruise, that she imagined an affair with another man. It actually kicks the story into gear toward the end of Act 1. Kidman is sitting on the floor and Cruise is sitting in the bed. She talks, he listens. The difference here is Stanley Kubrick doesn't keep cutting back to Cruz's sad reaction. Instead, he holds on Kidman's monologue for a very long time. So long, in fact, that we, the audience, start to crave Cruz's reaction. We're turning our head to see what he's thinking, what she's saying, but Kubrick won't let us. Then she says a critical line, beat, cut to Cruz. He's confused, dismayed, trying to put all this together into his head. Back to her as she continues. Again, we hold. Then we cut back to Cruz. He looks different. He's sad now. His expression has changed as she's talked. Back to her as she gets more biting and specific, then back to Cruz, and his eyes are red like they're about to pour tears. His mouth is clenched like he's grinding his teeth. He's mortified and furious at the same time. It's an amazing performance, but Kubrick uses the performance in that reaction shot to build suspense in what would normally be a very melodramatic scene. So, let's get back to planes, trains, and automobiles. Unlike Cruz and Eyes Wide Shut, Candy's expression doesn't change every time Hughes cuts back to him. Other than a look down to the floor, and back up, he maintains pretty much the same sad look through the whole scene. He's just waiting for Martin to get out his frustration by using him as a punching bag, and it's clear by his expression that this isn't the first guy to yell at him like that. The cuts are more like a reminder there's a very tender heart getting ripped to shreds here, but it's pretty much the same look short of the wider and tighter versions. So imagine if Hughes had cut the scene a little more like Kubrick might have cut it. What if Hughes held on Martin's monologue much longer before showing us Candy's reaction? What if, wait for it, what if Hughes held on Martin for the entire monologue until Martin was clearly finished and started hanging his tie back up? By this point, we would be dying to see how Candy is reacting to all of this. Then we finally cut to him and he has that heartbroken expression he has. If it were cut that way, would our hearts break for him a little more? I don't know. But it's an interesting thing to try the next time you're editing a scene like this. Well, thanks so much, Justin, for that bit. Uh, yeah, that was oh, awesome. Yeah, I didn't... Uh, yeah, I didn't think that I would uh, hear a segment where uh, John Hughes and Stanley Kubrick are... Compared uh, yeah, there? Yeah, compared there. But it totally, I totally makes sense. It makes me want to uh, rewatch Eyes Wide Shut. Now, mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one in a while. I mentioned this in the beginning, but just the idea of having like guest segments, um, I hope that's something that we can do here on the podcast uh, from time to time. So we are coming to the end here, but... It's always the end of the podcast, but it's always my favorite, and that is our Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. 
I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna confiscate my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. Aside from Ghostbusters, good luck finding a science fiction film of Bill Murray's to compare to Weird Science. I wouldn't say that um, the genre is his number one go-to type of film by any means. However, there is one very, very long-lost completed feature-length science fiction film that has never been released to the public, which includes our Billy and Dan Aykroyd in larger-than-cameo roles, and also happens to be a film um, that is the debut of Zach Galligan of Gremlins and Waxwork fame. In 1984, SNL writing veteran Tom Schiller wrote and directed a movie called Nothing Lasts Forever. It also ended up being his first and only feature. The film was also produced by Lauren Michaels, the creator of SNL. Turner Entertainment, who currently owns the rights to the film, boils the plot down like this for us. A displaced artist falls in with a group of social outcasts who actually rule the world. It's also a bit of a love story, some conceptual and surrealist art commentary is included, and also a message of self-discovery. I really wish I could see this movie in its entirety, not just in clips, but unfortunately, a bootleg of Nothing Lasts Forever is exceptionally hard to come by. Um, So only a month before production began, SNL legend John Belushi abruptly died of a drug overdose. He was also slated to be in the film, so emotions were totally weird during production. And being an 18-year-old on the set of his first movie, Zach Galligan had these grand visions of how he'd pal around with SNL folk and how he'd hope to bond with everybody. But when Zach and Billy met each other, Billy turned his back and said to uh, Schiller, the director, Who is this kid? Has he even paid his dues? Galligan remembered thinking that Billy was pretty much a giant jerk, and he continuously was antagonistic at every turn during filming. It wouldn't be until later that Galligan would discover that Billy thought that this kid needed some acting help. He thought he was just too green to be an actor. Their characters in the movie were enemies, thus leading Billy to stay in character and um, just be kind of a dick around Galligan. He wanted Galligan to hate him. Billy thought that he was actually helping in this in this instance. After production wrapped, Galligan was attending Columbia University in New York and noticed Billy and Aykroyd in the middle of filming Ghostbusters on his campus. Of course, there was a crowd, but Galligan managed to push his way forward. He shouted, Billy, Danny. Billy saw him, turned to Aykroyd and said, hey, it's the kid. Billy waved Galligan over. He climbs under a barricade and is immediately stopped by a cop. Billy comes over, puts his hand on the cop's shoulder, and says, It's okay. The kid's with us. Galligan spent some time hanging out and catching up with the guys, an experience he said that he'll um, always think of as a special moment that he'll always treasure with him. Um, Galligan was quoted a few times saying that on top of Billy maybe wanting to help him into character during Nothing Lasts Forever, he also attributes any weirdness to the death of John Belushi, 
um, which took a severe emotional toll on the whole SNL crew involved with the movie. Um, as for the legacy of this dystopian sci-fi comedy that keeps getting increasingly more bizarre the longer that it goes on, Nothing Lasts Forever didn't hit audiences well at its first and only test screening. In fact, it tanked. It's also been said that there were a number of copyright issues involving the use of unapproved clips from older films like Birth of a Nation, and since the rights had not been properly acquired, um, this of course caused legal complications. Billy and Schiller uh, teamed up and had a private screening in 2004, um, followed by about seven screenings at film festivals, including actually St. Louis International Film Festival, um, from anywhere from 2005 to 2014. And if you happen to be awake at 2 a.m. and watching um, the Turner Movie Classics channel in January of 2015, you might have also caught the movie um, when it aired once on TV. Um, they had the film available on the TMC app for a couple of days as well. Um, Billy, Aykroyd, Galligan, and Schiller are all big proponents of the film and have all gone on record numerous times saying that they would love for it to see the light of day. Um, it was a time full of real-life turmoil all put into this cinema cinematic art piece that is obviously still fresh in the minds of those who were part of it at the time. So I'd suggest checking it out, um, at least for what clips that you can that are out there in the internet land, or try to find some bootleg copy of your own. And hey, if you do find a bootleg, maybe send us a link. Drop us a line if you do, okay? Man, that's wild. Right? I, I mean, that's crazy. I didn't know that. I know. There's... I also didn't know that, that, I mean, that's wild that it was completed and it's been shown recently I mean, and it, it was, was shown in st louis yeah at the st louis film festival it was like 12 years ago Jeez, but i wasn't yeah. living here then but but still God. that it was shown here and they showed it on turner movie classics once did you see it no have you seen the movie in its entirety no gosh i know it's really frustrating that it's i not like on youtube no man you can find like a couple clips of it um, and it's mainly only trailers that people have put together. You can find a handful of people that have, you know, that say that I've seen it and it's a masterpiece and wonderful and great. And I, I think it's Zach Galligan that says, you know, I don't know if I would call it a masterpiece, but I would say that it definitely deserves to be shown. Well, see, toward the end there, I thought you were about to say Dan Aykroyd and the director and Bill Murray um, are happy that it's not getting shown because it's terrible no they all want it to be yeah, I mean, they all want people to see that's it that's such a rare <laughs> thing so I, that made me i, I was not yeah which is that. something that's so un bill murray like to to like be part of something that like i don't know if it's not out there already but if it if it's something that a lot of people haven't seen that he was a part of and he's still like no this is actually pretty cool so what year was this it's not like he's like going saying go see ghostbusters 2 He's like, go see this right. random movie that like you've never even heard of because wow. I want you to see it. So what year was this? 84. 84. Mm -hmm. Man, that's wild. So it was, bef yeah, it was like, I mean, right around like that whole uh, super popular Ghostbusters blow up time. I mean, there must have been some serious copyright issues because like post Ghostbusters, you would think that if Bill Murray would have like 
taking a crap in a movie they'd be like put <laughs> exactly like, we gotta put this movie from, out from what from what i learned it was like tom schiller took some serious liberties and like directly taking clips like from older movies okay. and not asking and not getting permission and like putting it in the movie and i i don't know why he thought he he could have gotten away with it. Probably because copyright issues weren't like a big, huge thing then. Maybe. That that know. would be the only that yeah that would be the only thing. But um, but yeah um that that seems to be the one thing that's wow. that's kept it from being shown. Man, I have to like look out and see if. Dude, like, if you could, can... you of all people could probably find yeah, us a copy. I'll find find us something. Yeah. I'll go to the black market. We're going there. Yeah. That's what the Murray moments led us to, yep. the black market. I was uh, an innocent young pup and then <laughs> post this Murray moment. I, <laughs> I was found Next scathing, podcast is scathing just the me. bottoms of the... It's just me asking for yeah. people to put donations towards the get out of jail for Justin Carr. <laughs> Has anyone seen Justin? The last time uh, he was on a hunt for this like obscure Bill Murray <laughs> film from 1984. That, I think that was... Uh, I did not know i mean i wasn't expecting i know it may yeah. sound like this is a put on but seriously I like you some of these things you're telling me i'm always just like what? i know that one was kind of like all over the place <laughs> like it was a little bit of zach galligan but i i really like that yeah. actor too but then this whole like yeah. movie that they did together there's just a lot of information to yeah. impart in this one and zach galligan you know what you know i waxwork is one of my favorite movies i love that movie really yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's kind of fun. It's interesting movie for it's, sure. It's fun. That's oh, what I'll say. Man, that is a bizarre. It's, yeah. it's out there, yeah. man. <laughs> um, But, uh, well, you know what? We learned, I found out Waxwork is your, one of your favorite films. And I mean, last I, week you found out that I have like a ridiculous amount of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies in my collection. I had, I had no idea. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. It's because I keep them upstairs. <laughs> all right. So that's all the time we have. Uh, that's your Murray moment. Your picks of the week are uh, total breakdown of weird science. And uh, next podcast is a, is a movie that you would think we would do during October, but it's a I, summer o- classic, I always watch really? it during the dead of summer. And that's of course. the original 1974 Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think what prompted this was the, uh, the sort of like snub at the Oscars really yeah. rubbed this the wrong way. No yeah. offense to the Oscars, but you know what I mean? No dude, he died. Toby Hooper died the and he didn't get a shout out. And I don't know. You can argue me. I don't know all their funky roles that they use to do the, when they put the pictures up, like I think if you do a movie like do. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, period, yeah, and you do like Poltergeist or anything else really yeah. that Toby Hooper did, you, you, I mean, I don't know, you kind of deserve a little bit of a shout yeah. out. So, um, even if you weren't recognized by the Oscars, we will recognize you during the next episode of Mr. Don't Push Pause. Yep. So, coming up, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, well, want to say thank you to Justin Hayward. Yes, thank so you so much, much Justin, for, uh, for being a part of contributing this. to our podcast this week. Um, thank you again to Mary Timmel for doing our intro, mm-hmm. Matt Pace for doing our music, Bo Shoulders for 
doing our graphics and stuff uh thank you so much for listening um as always if you guys have questions or comments you can contact us at don't push pause at gmail.com follow us on instagram at don't push pause podcast we're on the facebook's so thank you so much for listening uh to another episode i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reaper thanks a lot thank you guys